2: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli, an instructor in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. I'm joined today by Joshua Darr, Assistant Professor of Political Communication at Louisiana State University, and Matthew Hitt, Associate Professor of Political Science at Colorado State University. They are authors of Homestyle Opinion, How Local Newspapers Can Slow Polarization, along with Johanna Dunaway of Texas A&M University. The book was published by Cambridge University Press earlier this year. Josh and Matt, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you for having
1: us. Yeah, good to be here.
2: So, uh, Josh, why don't you uh, kick things off here for us? I understand that um, this book project came about because of a Google alert. Uh, what were you looking for, and uh, what what did you what caught your eye?
1: Sure. So, yeah, the, our, our co-author, Joanna Dunaway, had a Google alert for her name, as as I do as well. Um, but uh, there was a newspaper in California, The Desert Sun of Palm Springs, who mentioned her in a op-ed, and we, we read that. It was a, a, an editorial column by the editor, uh, Julie Mackinnon, whose name will come up a lot today, since this was her idea, um, saying that they had read a previous study we'd written in which we showed that... Uh, that uh, when a local newspaper closes, uh, voting behavior polarizes uh, in that people were less likely to split tickets and just voted for the same party up and down the ballot. They saw that and, th- and in this newspaper decided to drop national politics from their opinion page for an entire month. Um, so, you know, one of our conclusions in that previous paper had been that people were switching into national news when their local news disappeared they thought, well, we can do something about that uh, over at the de- Desert Sun. And so they announced this on June 8th. They said that starting July 1st, they were going to be dropping national opinion content. And we saw that and immediately thought, ding, 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 this is a natural experiment and we better measure it. Um, so once Joanna forwarded that to us, I still remember where I was when I got that email. And uh, we we dropped everything and got to it. <laughs>
2: Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I'm excited to, to talk with you about how you set things up and, and some of the, the uh, results you found. But um, before before we get to all that, um, Matt, the, the book has this phrase homestyle in it, which I understand comes out of political science and, and a way of thinking about politics. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Right. So the homestyle in the book's title, and we use the, the phrase throughout the book, it's a callback a bit to Richard Fenno's classic work on congressional politics, talking about how members of Congress have a quote unquote home style, that when they go back to their local district, the way they interact with their local constituents, dealing with local issues, is part of how individual members of Congress protect themselves from the sort of the national rise and fall of the party brand and cultivate their own sort of unique political following in their local area. So actually may have been Josh who suggested it. I, I'm not gonna, I, I can't recall. Um, but we, we wanted to call on that idea here that the desert sun was also intentionally cultivating a local style, a home style for its readers by very intentionally. And they to their immense credit, they really followed through by removing references to President Trump, Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, they really did focus quite intensely on issues of concern to Californians and especially folks in the Palm Springs area. So that's that's what the home style is a reference to that this home style of the desert sun had these effects on the area.
2: Sure. And so there's. This choice or this as action that the Desert Sun took, it was in July of 2019, if, if I recall correctly. Was there anything to the timing of it? It seems a little bit off cycle, so to speak, if you think about kind of national politics, but maybe that's the point. I, I don't know. You tell me.
1: I'm not sure if there was a particular reason that they chose July, except that that's, you know, when they read about our work and wanted Mm -hmm. to do it. I know that um, Palm Springs is about 118 degrees in July, (laughs) typically. Um, And so they may have been just, you know, some of their some of their normal readers maybe leave town. Some new ones come in. It's a time when they can experiment a little bit. And my conversations with them, they talked about sort of, you know, July being a good time to do that. Uh, It was I would say, a bit of a dead period in national politics, but it wasn't really, partially because there wasn't one during the Trump administration, really. Mm-hmm. And also because at the end of June 2019 was the very first Democratic presidential debates, and I, you know, so many candidates that there were two, it was debates. And, uh, and then there was another set of those at the end of the month in July. Uh, Trump was holding rallies across the country and making headlines with those, as he did. And so while there wasn't a national election it really wasn't you know there it's not like national politics weren't happening there was at the end of june for example before july started and they dropped their op-eds there were a ton of op-eds about those first democratic debates um, and and a lot of those were national opinion columns uh, syndicated columnists ejdo and mark Thiessen, leonard pitts those sort of people um, and so in july none of that happened
2: yeah so if they're not running those nationally syndicated columns what type of of content took their place
1: Um, i can i can take that one again um it was really interesting to see and 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 i think that it it, to the extent that this study is relevant and useful in other places it's going to depend on what sort of resources are available in those places because what i found was uh was a increase in the number of op-eds that were taken from a, a, Nash, a, a California service called Cal Matters. So Cal Matters is a nonprofit uh, news service that um, also provides a, a forum for opinion content uh, from largely from statewide leaders, local leaders, um, really kind of focused on bills before the California legislature, or because it's California, upcoming propositions and. And, uh, and ballot initiatives. Um, and so the number, the amount of Cal Matters content that they used tripled in July. Um, usually they would run one regular columnist. In July, they took from Cal Matters a lot because it's free to them and because uh, it's very California focused. Now, there were some consequences of that in terms of more executives, more CEOs, more politicians, fewer professional journalists. It really, it really changed the character of the page in that way, and sort of had a, had the consequence of privileging some of these um, some of these powerful voices. But the existence of a statewide free wire that let you talk about bills before the legislature at no cost to you is, quite frankly, one of the reasons why they were able to do this experiment at all. Uh, and so that was a bit of an interesting trade off in terms of the. Who's willing to write about state politics? Uh, how can it be feasible to deliver it to newspapers, and how can we encourage newspapers to use it? Cal Matters is an excellent example of that, but it also, I think, spotlights some of the potential issues with that in terms of who's who gets to have their voice amplified.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I know you say that and, and you, you've you mentioned here that there's, you know, like the all the, the, the PR people for the various businesses in town, their eyes lit up when they, when they heard about this, right? Because they saw opportunities to get their leaders you know, sort of uh, space on the page that they might not have otherwise. Yeah. Um, so, Matt, the before we get to some of your specific findings and in, in this study, can you just talk a little bit more or or set the table about this connection between local news or lack thereof and and political polarization? This is something that I think comes up a lot, particularly when we think about local news and and democracy. But you know how how were you thinking about those things heading into this project?
0: Right. So, We are far from the first people for the first scholars to observe that there is a crisis of local news in the United States right now, and that is particularly germane to the way we think about politics and political behavior. Certainly, we came into uh, this field of study um, thinking about newspaper closures. Uh, Other folks have done some great work on the hollowing out of local newsrooms, which is a similarly dire phenomenon. But in either case, if you think of a newspaper as a pres- an institutional presence in a local community that even if someone doesn't necessarily read the local paper, there's some good evidence not, uh, not just by us, but by lots of folks looking at how well communities without local news sources, governments are less transparent, that leaves them more open to potential corruption, um, that simple institutional presence of there's someone going to the city council meetings, there's someone paying attention, there's someone publicizing this stuff. Uh, it's meaningful from a sort of a good government perspective, but where we come at it from political attitudes and political behavior is one of the things local news sources can do is emphasize what we might call cross-cutting identities, identities that go uh Sideways from well, I'm a Republican. I, I like President Trump. I'm a Democrat. I love Bernie Sanders. Well, I'm also a resident of Palm Springs, and you know whether the um, whether the roads get fixed or whether the minor league ice arena gets built down the road. That's not really a Republican or a Democratic issue. I mean, maybe you know a tiny bit, but not really in the same way. So we, as Josh mentioned, we had found in some previous work that the loss of a local paper increased what you might call polarized voting or straight ticket voting in communities. Um, and this, this is something we observed at the, the geographic level. So this was an aggregate phenomenon. Um, and that's when we saw someone was doing some experiments with local news and local news content that had this uh, flavor of getting away from that national partisan identity, we certainly thought it was a, it was a ripe opportunity to do some testing.
2: Yeah, sure. And so this what what you just said there about the 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 connection between a lack of of local news and increased straight ticket voting. I just did an, an interview for this show with Nikki Usher, who I believe you cite in the book, and he she in in her forthcoming book sort of pushes back on this idea a little bit. She kind of argues that it's really it's it's difficult to tell causation and and correlation here, like how much one really does cause the other? Is, is that something that you've, you've considered at all in, in, in this work or, or other projects?
0: Yeah, I'll go ahead and, yeah, and Josh, feel free to jump in on this too. So ca- causal inference with observational data is hard, right? That's, I mean, that's the, the a fundamental problem of social science, right? It's hard to estimate precise causal effects when you're not able to run experiments. In the original work we did, Certainly we, you know, we can't randomly assign someone to close their newspaper, right? You're not going to get a cold standard field experiment in this kind of work. What we did there, we we did a couple of things, right? So first we ran what's called a sensitivity analysis. We tried to understand the mechanisms of selection into newspaper closure. And so we we're able to say, well, how large of a unobserved variable would we have had to miss in our modeling for these, these inferences not to be valid? and we found that the, there was, uh, we were fairly robust there, um, that you would have had to miss something more substantial than the introduction of broadband internet providers. right? Um, and then we also did a placebo test. So we said, run a similar analysis, but logically this analysis can't possibly have caused the effect of interest. In this case, we looked at split ticket voting in 2012 if your newspaper closed in 2013 or 14, and we found no effect there. So again, are these perfect? Is this, you know, a meta-analysis of a hundred randomized control trials? No, but we certainly, you know, I I think we're we appreciate that causal inference with observational data is hard. We're not saying that we got it perfect, but I I would say we tried to do our best um, with the constraints of the research question we were asking. Yeah,
2: yeah. So let's let's jump then into this this experiment with the the. The Desert Sun. How did you go about setting that up? What what did you measure? How did you sort of go about doing this in a in a very short amount of time, as you as you mentioned earlier?
0: I sometimes academia feels like it moves so slowly. This project really um, has always blown my mind and how quickly things came together in terms of designing something, um, getting uh, IRB approval, that's that sort of thing. Um, huge credit uh, to my co-authors Josh and Joanna. Um, you know we really you know we we moved pretty quick um the design was pretty straightforward uh, what we wanted to do was uh do a a randomized uh survey of folks who were served by the desert sun's geographic area whether they read the paper or not uh, as well as we wanted to match with another community that was as similar as possible to uh, the Palm Springs area. So we looked, you know, we stayed in California, of course, uh, we could, you know, collected census demographic kind of information. Uh, Ventura County, uh, was a similar area demographically. It was pretty balanced statistically also served by a daily paper, uh, also a Gannett paper of all things. So the same corporate chain. Um, and then we, uh, looked at a before and after design. So we fielded these surveys, uh, right before, the month of July started, and then right after in both communities to look at the changes in some of these things we care about before and after the experiment. And having that control community gives us a little more precision and a little more confidence in trying to identify those causal effects, as I was just talking about. Uh, the quantities of interest, as you mentioned, Jenna, there wasn't an election <laughs> in July, right? We didn't have those nice voting behavioral outcomes that we might have liked to look at. So instead, We measured uh, some important political attitudes there's been a lot of talk in political and social science about affective polarization that basically basically in layman's terms people just plain don't like the other party Uh, they have a very low view of it Um, and similarly a social polarization where i don't want to be friends with members of the other party i don't want my children marrying a member of the other party that sort of thing so we measured those things in both the treated in the control communities before and after the experiment.
2: Yeah. And so, uh, Josh, tell us a little bit about, um, what, what you found, I guess, maybe to, to start with, um, were you able to determine how much people even noticed this change that the, the desert sun made?
1: Sure. So I think people did notice we ran some reader surveys as well. And, and I, you know, I don't think a majority said they noticed, but, um, a reasonable amount said that they were aware of it. Uh, those who said that they were, the, the vast majority said that they liked it. Um, I think it was, yeah, I think it was, it was maybe 30% said they noticed it. And of that, you know, only 5% of that said they didn't like it or something of, of the sort. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, people in general, want to see local content in a local newspaper from just a marketplace of news perspective. uh, We may be past the point where a local newspaper is supposed to be a big bundle of everything, uh, including national news. Um, Now that is some of the appeal and some of the unique potential civic contribution of local news is that you get the, um, the healthy stuff with, the, with the, the sugar, you know, you get the, you get high school sports, but you also get national politics. And even if you only care about high school sports, you're getting city council meeting minutes and police blotters and all the other stuff that comes with it. And so whether that's all good or bad, it is all together, and you get higher levels of this sort of inadvertent exposure that study after study shows is, is, is pretty important. Um, so, you know, I think that people did – seemed to like it. Some people didn't. Um, some people were, were worried about, you know, free expression, essentially, uh, because they also didn't run any letters about Trump. This wasn't just op-ed columns. This was letters to the editor as well. I single out Trump because prior to July uh, in the month of June, about a third of the opinion page content, including letters, mentioned President Trump. Um, so he was by far uh, the biggest topic on the page, um, and it gives you a sense of how dramatic the experiment was. In that they dropped they, before that the page was about half syndicated and uh, about a third Trump, and those uh, the and syndication went down was replaced by Cal Matters, and the Trump uh, mentions went away. Um, so people did get a dramatic change, and for the most part, they seemed to enjoy it.
2: Yeah, and, and what about the? Uh... Uh, how that translated into their thoughts about politics and some of the uh, polarization we were discussing earlier.
0: Right. So I, I want to be clear and sort of, you know, we haven't solved polarization, right? Like this was a one month experiment by one local news source in one community. So it's, it's important to, you know, to bear in mind that we're talking about a complicated, deep-rooted social and psychological phenomenon, and we did pre-register uh, all of our hypotheses before the experiment went in the field. Um, you know, we we you know we laid laid down our markers and said, here's what we think is going to happen, and what we saw is not some dramatic, oh my gosh, polarization vanished in Palm Springs overnight. I mean, I would, I would think if we said that everyone should download our data and triple check us because something (laughs) has to be wrong there, which is that's not what we found. And that's not what, you know, that's not the conclusion of the book. Rather, what we saw in our control community of Ventura among the sort of segments of the population that you would expect are politically with it enough for things happening in the country to make a difference on their attitudes. So people who tend to read newspapers, people who say they're engaged in politics, people who have a basic level of political knowledge, that sort of thing. We saw these measures of affective and social polarization rise a bit in the control community. What we saw instead in Palm Springs is these same measures stayed basically flat among these politically with it segments of the population. So it's not as if if all the local newspapers in the country did this tomorrow and stuck with it, um, you say, and now the Democrats and Republicans have barbecues on the weekends and go bowling on Tuesdays. And it's like, you know, no, instead it's there was a this is sort of was the nature of the Trump administration. The month of July had a lot of, you know, intense, you know, um, hyperventilating news cycles, a lot of partisan rancor and conflict. You combine that with a pretty competitive Democratic primary um, a lot of if you were not subject to this experiment your local news sources were continuing to reinforce and frame the political world in terms of these Republicans against Democrats it's all or nothing that sort of thing and so the way we couch the finding is there is a rising tide of affective and social polarization in this country we're Far from the first to talk about it. Many uh, brilliant scholars have documented this for you for a number of years now. There's this rising tide of these emotional, psychological, social forms of polarization. What we observed in Palm Springs is that rising tide slowed down. It leveled off, didn't go away, didn't change people on some fundamental level, but we do detect uh, that statistically meaningful difference between the communities. Because of our research design and because of the nature of the field experiment, the control communities, and the fact that we have the before and after difference in differences design, we have we have some confidence that there's there's something going on here, that this this experiment did have this effect.
2: Right. So it's you know, people in Palm Springs were still getting national news from wherever they got it, you know, TV, online, social media, wherever. It's just there was like this kind of Breath of fresh air in their local newspaper that just didn't talk about was not one more voice to the choir talking about these same things.
1: Yeah, I hesitate to say that anything turned down the temperature in, in Palm Springs in July. Um, <laughs> but, but it does seem that, you know, they were able to refocus and, and it was a busy month for national politics. I mean, the you know, Bob Mueller testified before Congress and they were chanting, send her back about Representative Ilhan Omar at Trump rallies. And like I said before, the debates were happening. And so, you know, these California based issues are, are important, meaningful real structural local issues about, you know, relations with the local Native American tribe, the Agua Caliente, which they were supposed to be building this minor league hockey arena on their land. Um, There was a a sort of after effects of a political scandal that manifested in this move to to save a particular architectural landmark, which is a very important thing in Palm Springs where You know, they have this this distinctive, unique mid-century modern architecture all around. So these were local issues of great importance. They touched on political themes, but they weren't about President Trump and they weren't about the divisions between Republicans and Democrats. and, you know, one of the one of the we, we, there's a content analysis chapter and then there's the the chapter on our survey results. But the one piece of content analysis that we put in that survey chapter is that mentions of pl- either political party dropped mm-hmm. from 25 percent to 10 percent of, of all the stories in there. And so that's, you know, that's a pretty big, pretty big fall. And uh, if we're not talking about parties, we can still talk about issues, but we're, we're not necessarily talking about them in terms of parties that can slow down the division that, that those parties cause.
2: So what did the, the staff at the, the Desert Sun make of, of this? I, I know we, you, you, you talked before about how they, you know, maybe it, it perhaps might be time to reimagine the content on these pages. Do, is there a case to be made for running more local content, if not exclusively, Local content, given that people can get these national political ideas from so many other sources, um, did did this experiment spark any of those broader discussions at the at the paper?
1: It did, yeah. the The story of opinion editor at the Palm Springs paper here is 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 really interesting, and I think illustrates a lot of the broader dynamics of the local news industry. Um, first of all. Yes, it'd be great if more places did this, but it was a lot more work for them and work that they could do because they had an opinion editor, which is a increasingly rare thing to have uh, for a local newspaper, especially given the the immense cuts that have happened at a lot of these places. But, you know, uh, Julie Mackinan, the executive editor, was able to talk Al Franken, the opinion editor at the time, into doing it. <laughs> and... The reason it's more work is that you have to, if people are submitting locally who haven't done so before, um, you have to edit them. And, and, and that's a lot more editing because they're not used to it. Now, you know, the stuff that's coming from CalMatters is pretty easy to just go ahead and publish, but uh, local community submissions require more work. You have to solicit that. I know in the book we have some quotes from from Julie Mack and then talking about how much she had to go talk to people and ask them to submit. And, you know, like we had a conversation about this six months ago. Would you be willing to write 500 words about it? You know, she's out there pounding the extremely hot pavement. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to get people to write. Um, in the month since the book, uh, you know, happened in the year, I guess, or so the uh, Gannett offered buyouts and um, to them and Al Franco took it. So they lost their opinion editor. Uh, now, this is clearly a point of pride for them, and they, they referenced the experiment when, when doing this, but um, there was a, a movement from the community to hire a new one. Uh, they, they wanted to keep an opinion editor in Palm Springs, and so they actually they started a community organization to raise money to fund that salary for at least a year. Um, they were able to raise that money, and it wasn't just one big gift. It, you know, I think the biggest gift was only one-sixth of the total money that they raised, so it was a real community-based um, movement to do that. They were able to do that. They actually, just in the month after the book came out, they hired a new opinion editor, um, and so they're going to be able to keep that, that local focus, and they did say that, that there were lasting effects of this in that people who hadn't written before were more willing to write again they, 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 there's a bigger well to go back to. Um, they they included more Calmatter stuff in the months that followed. They were able to sort of, while they brought back some of their national columnists, they were able to to reorient the page in a more local direction. Um, so, when I'm, you know you may ask more later about whether what other newspapers can learn from this, but if you do an experiment like this. It's more work for one month, but you broaden your pool of potential op-ed writers, which in the long term may be less work for you, especially as they gain more experience writing and need to be edited less and less. Um, so, right, it is it, interesting.
2: Yeah, and it, it it sounds like too that it might have brought community awareness to something that the the community m- might have overlooked before. Just you know, understanding the what this opinion page could be as as a voice for people within. The, the community to talk about issues that matter to them is is that a fair characterization?
1: I think so. I think the fact that they'd recently showed we can make this local and people want to study it and it has effects um, helped them reach out to the community when they needed them.
0: Right, and the the paper shared a little of their uh, information about engagement and whatnot, and it you know there's there's no evidence that this cratered. <laughs> You know, engagement that people stopped clicking or stopped reading or anything like that. So, you know, it's not—it's not as if people were only coming to the op-ed page to read these syndicated columnists. Um,
1: the opposite's true, actually. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the 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 clicks and the readership of their local op-ed stuff from July uh, went up by quite a bit. I think it nearly doubled according to their metrics um, online. So. As we move towards more digital ads supporting uh, local news revenues, um, it is noteworthy, I think, that the the specialized product that they're producing, not just the reprinting of nationally available, nationally syndicated op-eds, seem to garner more interest and more readership online. Um, so, from the paper's perspective, I think it was I think it was a success, and and I know I've done a couple of events and, and interviews with with Julie where where she's, she's said that. So I think that it's something other papers could look at.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. I guess if you're, you know, whether you're, you're a business leader or or somebody else from, from the community, you're going to be more inclined to share it on your own personal networks or your organization's networks. And yeah, kind of gets that reach that, you know, EJ Dion has no incentive to share his column that runs in the, in the desert sun, if he even knows that it's there. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I think that, That makes sense. Um, can you just before we get to what other newspapers can learn? I mean, we see a lot of digital first news outlets doing the this this type of work, this very heavily, you know, engagement focused journalism and, uh, you know, really centering on on giving voice to to communities and whatnot. Um, you, i know you, we've 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 talked a lot about cal matters but what what is the the rest of the the news landscape like in in palm springs is there are there hyper local outlets or, or other places that people might be able to get this this type of content that, that the deserts unpublished
1: so the rest of the i mean palm springs is not a very generalizable community in some ways, you know, I mean, like I said, this, the, the, the nice thing about it not being our idea is that we could just come in and measure it, but <laughs> it's not, it's not every town USA. Um, it's heavily Hispanic and there are a lot of Spanish language news sources um, uh, it, with not just in Palm Springs, but throughout the rest of the Coachella Valley um, Palm Springs is a, is a, you know, I think every member of their city council is, is LGBTQ plus. They're a very uh mm-hmm. Heavily gay and lesbian community, um, but without you know, there are the fact that Cal existed was hugely important, um, and the fa- the, I believe there are more of these nonprofit type sources developing in, in other states. Um, California perhaps leading the way there in terms of making that available. Um, a lot of a lot of money from from San Francisco and, and those areas helped support Cal Matters when it was first being founded. Um, but to the extent that that kind of content can be shared and used and cooperated or, ac- across platforms, I think we saw the real potential of that here. Um, I, again, I don't know that in a state that didn't have a service like Cal Matters that this would be possible. Um, so as these new entries to the local news media ecosystem grow, um, how much are they competing with traditional newspapers and how much are they helping support um, local newspapers by... Providing these common goods, I think, is something to keep an eye on uh, because it was really central to this story.
2: Right, and and how much can they collaborate versus compete with one another? Right. That's that's a big you know discussion happening within sort of journalism circles more more broadly. Um, so, so you mentioned earlier, you know, things other newspapers might learn from this. Um, I know you know newspaper folks certainly talk to each other, and sounds like folks have have sort of learned about. The, the work that, that uh, you all did with the Desert Sun? Are there other things you would say to a, an editor who might be thinking about something like this and for their paper, their community?
0: It does strike me the, from this work and other, other work, we've done other work that's out there by other folks. It's remarkable to me that the, the hunger for local news, the demand seems to be there. Right. And so it's a curious case of almost market failure that you're having such a crisis in the local news industry when it seems that there is an audience for it. The model, the model is the tough part, right? How do you get folks to pay for it? How you get folks to subscribe to it, that sort of thing. But for a, any kind of local news outlet that has an interest in emphasizing those local issues, pushing back a little bit against the sort of you know, zero sum, us against them, uh, rancorous national political discourse that we're having in this country. I think there are there are opportunities here, as Josh Josh has very nicely put it, there ha- for to do this particular experiment, you've got to have the right resources in place. Certainly, if you're going to invite more community submissions, um, more general public submissions that aren't coming from professional journalists, there has to be an awareness of whose voices are being heard, right? in the palm springs example certainly there it was not a representative slice of california palm springs of the united states that got on the opinion page right and so an awareness of there are some voices from more underrepresented communities uh, who might require uh you know that extra outreach uh, that extra just awareness of you know who's who's getting in the page and who's not so it's you know local and representative uh, would would be the goal, of course, but that requires resources. That requires you know some some opinion editor, some someone to be in
1: charge of the thing. And I'll just note in terms of what can be done and what can be supported uh, with the amount of resources. Um, I think our book points to the importance of opinion journalism. I think there's a lot of space. In the philanthropy world right now, and looking to support investigative journalism, this idea of a watchdog and shining a light in the dark corners of city hall is extremely important. But, and I think there's actually something of an aversion, maybe, to supporting opinion journalism, in that the word "opinions" right in there, um, and and people are are worried they're just going to be amplifying left versus right type of things, which often is unfortunately the diversity you see in the opinion page is just left versus right. It is an extremely male-dominated space. It is a white-dominated space. Um, and those inequalities are are really exaggerated on the opinion page, even for journalism, which which has those inequalities exaggerated in it just as a field broadly. So I think the opinion page has great potential because it can function as a community forum in a way... Uh, it deprofessionalizes the newspaper. It takes journalists' voices out just for a couple pages and lets people reach their neighbors and communities in a in a with a microphone that they would not otherwise have under the banner of the local newspaper. And so, I would like to see more of a focus on cultivating local, locally representative opinion writers both from a gender and a race and a power perspective, again, it's always going to be easier to print something that's polished up from a nationally syndicated columnist or a local PR flack. Right. Um, But it it is not going to be representative and it's not going to create a truly community forum. And, and you saw a little bit of that with this, you know, I I really admire what the desert sun did, but in relying on that kind of submission from the community, but also from Cal matters there some of those inequalities were deepened in that the page got whiter and it didn't get any more female. And so there there are national organizations. There's a place called the Op-Ed Project that tries to cultivate writers of, of, of different backgrounds than we would normally see, of different identities. That could be done more effectively at a local level. And I know that there's like journalism prizes and there's, um, there's money available for some of these nonprofit startups or some of these newsletter based things for uncovering local corruption and other really important things like that. But, and this is just me perhaps on a soapbox here, but if we're not also encouraging community members to feel like they have a stake in their local newspaper and to feel like we need to preserve our local newspaper because they're the ones that amplify my voice then we're not going to be able to get the kind of community buy-in that lets us really save what are fundamentally local products. Um, To the extent that philanthropy could encourage that, to strengthen professional associations for for opinion journalism that could distribute best practices down to the local level, um, to have a a state-by-state version of of an opinion forum with training resources that can connect with, with community uh, organizations and let them know, this is the kind of thing that you can do and what will and will help your organization. Um, it's got to be collaborative, and I think there's there's money in that space. I just don't think it's being used to cultivate opinion journalism at the moment to the extent that it could be. Um, and I and you know I think you know they studied this was this experiment changed a page a day in the newspaper. Um, and we found these effects. So I think there's great potential.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the, I mean, some of what you were just describing seems to be directly at odds with the kind of private equity style of, of management at these these papers, right? I mean, they come in and they want to have you know more one size fits all type of content. So it seems it's more of an of an uphill battle, so to speak, to to try to make the case for things like this.
0: Right. It's. The private equity trend in the local news space is obviously deeply distressing. The pursuit of next quarter's profit over building an institution that can be profitable for 20 years um, seems to create this dynamic, right? Why do we need an opinion editor? We can just bring in EJ Dion, and he's he's cheap, right? <laughs> like, <it's> relatively, <laughs> from he's good from the corporate perspective, right? He's not, you know. And... We, we don't mean to pick on EJ, we are, but we don't no. mean to. No. Sorry, E.J. Yeah. But I do think you're seeing some other experimentation with different kinds of models Uh, here in Colorado. uh, There's been uh, a really remarkably successful outlet called the Colorado Sun that is a a digital only right now. They're not paywalling. um, They're not corporately owned, uh, providing pretty in-depth local journalism. They continue. They keep. They keep hiring people that I follow on Twitter. So it seems seems like they're at least not going. Uh, it's not just running aground this year. So it's it's certainly the case that the you know I think we, I will pick on Alden uh, Global Capital. Uh, what Alden and their ilk are doing is not conducive to creating these community institutions that have this positive social and political impact as well as potentially an economic impact. If it's a forum that people buy into and enjoy and get value out of that can be in the long run, a self sustaining and profitable enterprise, but not under the model of cut costs, cut salary, cut sections, cut pages, because then the folks who did rely on the forum say, Well, that's not, it's not what it used to be. It's a ghost. Uh, and that's it's not worth subscribing to a ghost paper. Mm-hmm.
1: People aren't going to subscribe to local papers that aren't giving them local news, and the the model of hedge funds is based in part on essentially profiting from the emotional connection that these newspapers have made with their communities over the course of many years. I mean, it's it, you know, I getting your name in the paper, um, being able to advertise in a local paper, and find local sub, local subscribers that will buy your products. Right. Because it's not just subscribers. It's very much advertisers that paid for these. But they all were on the same page of let's you know, the stronger the local identity is, the more we can sell our products, the more I'm going to get out of subscribing to this. And there for a while, there hedge funds were able to get away with sort of hollowing them out, but still relying on that connection. If that connection goes away, they're not they're gonna be done, but they'll have made their money and they'll be fine with that, right? So the question is, do we reinvent the local newspaper organizations that still exist, or do we try something new that would replace that and maybe we can forge that connection in a new way? Um, That I don't know and maybe is a bit above the pay grade of of the book, but what the book does show is when you can create a community forum that emphasizes local issues, people read it more and dislike each other less. And so that should be a part of whatever that that future model is. I think, at least based on on what we
2: found. Sure. Yeah, that is definitely like the million dollar question right now. Do we save these organizations, even though in some cases they're varying levels of the shells of what they once were, or do we build something new in their in their place? And I think that's probably going to be different in in every community to to, to some extent, but. Um, thinking one more follow up question about um, Palm Springs. So you said that you know the the letters to the editor um, before this experiment were they they were there were a lot of, of references to to Trump and to, to national politics. Um, did you keep an eye on on the content after this ended? How quickly did those Trump letters come back? Did any of the themes that were discussed in the community focused content from the month of July sort of carry over longer once things kind of went back to normal, so to speak?
1: Sure. Um, so we, we, we only measured, th- I mean, I measured three months. I, I read three months of the op-ed page for this, um, June, July, and August. So I, uh, it's harder to talk about long-term trends. I will say that 37% of the letters to the editor mentioned Trump in June and 21% mentioned him in August obviously that dropped to nothing in July. So that's a decrease. I, I don't, I can't speak to whether that endured, but the, uh, the op-eds and editorials sprung, sprung right back up and were actually a little bit higher in terms of mentioning Trump. Maybe they, they needed a break, um, after after all, all the hard work of July, but at least in the data we have, uh, it did tail off somewhat. So once people get the sense of, of, of you know, I can write in about local and community things. I don't have to just uh, blow off steam about the president. Um, that does seem to have endured into August.
2: Okay. So, uh, last last question here. Um, what's next for both of you? What are what are you working on right now? Is there are there any opportunities to uh, continue or or build upon your findings from from this work?
0: Yeah, I I have become keenly interested. In this topic, over the course of these uh, projects with uh, this terrific pair of co-authors, um, certainly as other news outlets become interested in this sort of thing, um, you know, we'd love to, uh, I think, do something similar, exp- expand on this work. Um, it's Palm Springs' uh, wonderful community, but again, uh, pretty idiosyncratic. Um, and so, you know, the extent to which this dynamic generalizes is, is as yet unknown. That requires uh, further research. And just more broadly, I, I do remain very interested in uh, the institutional presence of information sources in politics. So I've got a, a few uh, a few different uh, half-baked ideas that hopefully will fully bake over the course of the next five years here.
1: Yeah, I'm interested in this idea of local news cultivating and reinforcing identity at a local level, I've started to sort of do some experiments in that area. Um, but I'm also, you know, I would very much like to work with the local newspaper again. I think if there was some sort of easy way for, for journalists to connect with academics that wasn't just a, a Google mm-hmm. alert, um, I think we would have a, a chance of, of doing more experiments like this, because I think it's really cool that they wanted to do this experiment, but they really wouldn't have had a way to assess it Um, if we, if they hadn't partnered with us and so we can contribute these things and they, they know their, their product and their audiences, you know, better than we do. And so they, they can figure out what sort of experiments they might, they might be able to do. Um, I'd also be interested in seeing what happened when a, one of these nonprofits that we talked so much about today, if there was a nonprofit or a newsletter, you know, Substack is getting into local news, for example. Um. What happens when one of those starts? How does it disrupt that ecosystem locally? Who signs on to it? And do their attitudes reflect any sort of change? Um, So, you know, our first project was about things ending and this was more about changing midstream. It'd, It'd be interesting for the next steps to be about starting something new.
2: Yeah, for sure. I could see, yeah, maybe there's an opportunity even like for grants that you, you could apply for with, with the local news outlet, those those types of possibilities. Yeah, it sounds super interesting for sure. Be happy
1: to. Yeah. And, and always interested in, in doing that. So if you have ideas about grants, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> All
2: right. Well, great. Well, this is this has been a, a very interesting conversation. I highly recommend uh, folks check out this book. Josh and Matt, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.